Welcome back to Aliyah Yomi. Today we're going to be learning Vashalach Revi'i, the fourth Aliyah in Parshas Vashalach. This is the Aliyah for which the Parsha is named Shabbos Shira because it includes the Shira, the song after Kriyas Yamsov. It is a longer Aliyah because it includes the Shira <coughs> running from Perek Yudalit Pasuk Chavav to Perek Tezvav Pasuk Chavav. That is 32 Psukim in total. Let's take a look at a basic overview of our, our Aliyah and then we'll some points to ponder. So Hashem now tells Moshe Rabbeinu to stretch out his hand over the waters at this point in time to bring back the waters over the Egyptians, over the chariots and over the riders. And Moshe Rabbeinu does this and at that morning, in the time as morning was dawning, because this whole episode happened at night, returns to its state and Mitzrayim are at this point in time caught in the waters, they are shaken up by the waters. And they are covered up, and the, the entire army is wiped out. And Bnei Israel at this point are walking out of the, the sea in the dry land, and the water is still protective. Choma, Miminam, is still a protective wall on their right and on their left. And Hashem saves Israel from Egypt on this day, and they see the Egyptians are now being being brought up by the current, by the tide to the sides. They see that they're being killed. They know the enemies aren't just on the other end of the sea. They're actually dead. And they see the great hand of Hashem, and they believed in Hashem and Moshe, his servant. And then we have what's called Az Yashir, the song, very beautifully structured song about the uh, miracles that occurred during Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and specifically at Yamsuf. Um, a, a very poetic language set out in a what's called Ariach al Gabe Levena, which is a structure of bricks of, upon one another, set up in such a way to uh, to think about uh, to to reflect upon these miracles and larger miracles. It's too big for us to understand every pasuk and every meaning and innuendo. There's just so much here, so we're going to try to try to look at an overview rather than the specifics because it requires much time to appreciate. Um, then we hear at the end of the song that Miriam is, has well decided to sing a song. She took the Tov Piyadah, she took the Simbril, she went and she led the, the woman, and they also sang their own song of Shira Lashem Ki that they sang about the horses and riders which were drowned in the sea. <coughs> Moshe then brings the nation of Israel away from Yamsuf. They go to the desert of Shur. They went three days in the desert, but there was no water to be found. Bnei Israel came to Marah, but the, there was water there, but the water was Marim. It was bitter. So they called the place Marah, but they started complaining to Moshe, and they said, why is it? What should we drink? And Hashem showed him a specific type of tree, threw it into the water, and the water was um, sweetened, and they received a number of laws there. That's what they were tested. And Hashem then reminds them, that if you're going to listen to me and you keep all the commandments, then I will not give you any of the plagues that are put upon Egypt. The implication being that if you do complain, then perhaps you'll be susceptible to some of the ills of what happened to Egypt as well. That's the general projection of the Aliyah. Let's take a few points to ponder because there's so much to consider. One is the interesting word le'esanoi at the beginning of our Aliyah. The, that when Moshe Rabbeinu stretches out his hand over the sea again, it returns to its original state. What does that mean actually? So the, the, what, what does this refer to? So the Gemara, the, the, the Medrash in Shemais Rabbah actually says the word is the same letters as the word to its condition. What does that mean? So the Baal explains 
that Hashem negotiated with the ocean, with the sea, upon its creation. And then he said that there's going to come a time where I need you to break the rules of nature that I've programmed into you. The algorithms of how molecules, the liquid molecules work, are going to be superseded at a certain point in in, in uh, um in history, and therefore yeah, you're going to now return to the condition of creation. There was one time we have to subvert creation, and now it's returning to that condition as that to that that uh, state that was that was negotiated beforehand. The Rachaim says that the Tanai, the condition was that nature will bend to the will of Torah. That was the condition. So whether it be to split or to unsplit, both require this um, subverting their destiny, their their uh, rules to that which Hashem wanted as well. The Chassam Sofer has an interesting suggestion where he points out why would it be that the condition is the return, the condition should be the splitting. So he points out that when the waters were returning, Bnei Yisrael was still in the sea, and therefore Moshe Rabbeinu had to do it in a way that the Bnei Yisrael were protected while the sea was cascading down upon the Egyptians. It was still in the condition of protecting them in the Bnei Yisrael in the front end of the tunnel where they were walking as well. You'll notice that a pasuk in our aliyah is a repetition of the pasuk in the previous aliyah, which is, The, wall, the water was walls to them on their right and on their left. <clears throat> but you'll notice that there's a difference between the two pasukim in that the word choma, wall, is spelt without a vav in our aliyah, which can also be spelled without vowels. It can also be spelled as chema, anger. So the water was anger to them, which is the opposite of a wall. A wall is a protection agency. Uh, anger suggests some, some degree of... Of um, of guilt born on their side to the waters. So what is that? What is that referring to? Is the water there to protect them or to be angry with them um, in personification? So the Vilna Gaon suggests two uh, two ideas. One, one idea is, is that if you look at the pesukim, you'll also notice that it says it says in the first pasuk where the waters act as walls. That's when it says they were in the sea, in the dry land. The possible it suggests that the, that it's, the waters were like chema, were anger. It's first they were in the dry land, in the sea. So he pointed out that the, the Vilna Gaon points out that there are two groups of people. The first group of people were those who jumped in immediately. They were the, the they, they were the people who were bayam bayabasha that they were already jumping in at the beginning. They believed in Hashem. Those people, the the waters protected. And the other people who were hedge sitting, they kind of said, "Well, look, we'll figure out what happens, and if it looks like it's successful for the first round, then we'll follow them." So those kind of people, the water wasn't as protective for. There was a sense of anger. The Vilna God also points out that that, that the, the the last tribe to go into the sea was in their travels was Dan. Dan had among them um, a very interesting individual who later on would wreak great spiritual havoc, and his name was Micha. Micha will later on create a shrine called Pesel Micha. Very complicated person from the tribe of Dan, um, and he uh, and he would. Or would, would be work with the tribe of Dun at least, and that was Dun traveled last, and therefore the waters were angry when seeing this fellow called Pesel Mecha walking through the sea, knowing that they had to protect somebody who would create great, terrible, ter- terrible spiritual um, legacy in the land of Israel in the future as well. Two different perspectives the Vilna Gaon shares. Another question is, why does it say B'nai Israel believed in Moshe and Hashem and Moshe only now? They didn't it say in the end of Pasha Shmos that when he first approached them they believed? So the Joshua Saran, Rabbeinu Nisim, says that yeah, they did believe at the beginning, but then there seemed to be these questions, you know, like Moshe Rabbeinu didn't seem to ask in a way that, that expressed that he was an agent of the divine. So, you know, he asked for a three-day journey and then he asked to borrow 
Kesev and uh, it, it sounded like it was a weak posture in their questioning, in the way that Moshe Rabbein represented Hashem, which led them to question Moshe's leadership and led them to question um, Hashem's, um, Hashem's plan. That being the case, that's why it's only at the Yamasuf when they realized that the whole idea of this weakness of request was to lure Egypt out into the waters, that they should die in the waters because they threw the Jewish children to the waters, that they now understood how the whole thing held together and now their belief was renewed, which is why Vayaminu Hashem of Moshe Avdo happens only at the sea as well. When you look at the, the word Az Yashir, the word Az means then, which sounds funny because if you want to talk about them singing, it should be that not then, but right at that moment, that's when they sang, sang the song. Why is it that it's in the future? So the Belzarebah, after the Holocaust, was regrouping some of his, his Hasidim, and they were sitting around the Shabbos table, and no one was able to sing. There was just so much devastation, so much loss. No one was in, no one was in the mood to sing Shabbos Miras. So he asked this question, he says, why is it, and it says Az Yashir. So Rashi comments, quoting Chazal, that the reason is because it's a remez litchia samesim. There's going to be a res- this is a hint towards the resurrection of the dead in the future. That in the future there's going to come a time when we will sing. When we will sing about the the not just this miracle, but the miracle of the resurrection of the dead. Um, and so the Belzareba asked his Chassidim, why is it that this is the place, out of all places in the Torah, that there's a, a, a hint to to resurrection of the dead? And he answered, because if you remember, the Medrash suggests that during the plague of darkness, 80% of the nation of Israel were wiped out. They did not leave the land of Egypt, which means to say that there was not a single family or person who was not affected by some loss when they left the land of Egypt. People were in mourning. People did not have all their family with them. And that being the case, it was very. It must have been very hard for them to sing Shira at this point, even witnessing all these incredible miracles. Yet, the reason they were able to do this was because they actually were able to to understand that there is a hereafter. It's not the end. There's going to be the opportunity of seeing those friends, families, beloved cousins um, who, who are no longer here. In fact, there was a... Uh, Rabbi Frantz uh, tells a story about a woman who lost her only son in the, the war of Shlomo Galil in Lebanon in the 1980s. And she was so broken by that experience. She was a widow. She lost her only son. She, would only, she wouldn't go to anything except for funerals. That's the only reason she would go out. And so one time she was at a funeral. She was in, in, in Yerushalayim, in, in Sanhedria. And a friend of hers told her, come, let's visit the, the kever of Rav Arya Levine, the tzaddik of Yerushalayim. And they went over to his kever. And written on the gravestone of Rav Arya Levine is not about all the greatness and the things that he did and the hearts that he comforted and the prisoners he visited. What it just says is that anybody who comes to my, my, my grave should pronounce the 13th uh, um, axiom of faith that the Ramam says that I mean by Shlema, that Akash Baruch Hu will resurrect the dead. That's what he said. And then she looked at a touched accord and she had the sense that this was going to be, yes, it was a terrible tragedy, but it wasn't forever. There was going to be a time, there would come a time where she would be able to see her son again. That was her turning point, was that real, realization of the resurrection of the dead is yet to come. And that's why at this critical moment, the empty t- chairs and the empty tables were, um, that these people at Yamsuf, at the nation of Israel, were, were witnessing. They had some degree of consolation by noting that Hashem said there would be a resurrection of the dead in the future as well. Now the question over here is why is the focus of the first pasuk that the horse and the rider were thrown into the sea? The, 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 the Rashi tells us that there was a miracle that they drowned in an attached state. So the rider and the horses were not separated in the drowning. Why is that a necessary miracle? Why is it sort of put as the 
first focus of the Song of the Sea. So it's it is an interesting observation that Jakob Weinberg makes, and that is that Egypt was very good at denying the cause, the real cause of all the effects that they were noticing. So they were, would deny that Hashem really had a hand in any of the natural disasters which befell them. And so Hashem says, if you cannot connect cause and effect, I'm going to uh, allow you to die in a way where cause and effect, rider and horse, are going to die connected. The eternal lesson being that you need to know who's riding the horse or the cause of all these effects that you see are. Why is it that the the, the song of Aziashir is structured in the structure of what's called Ariach al which is a brick structure, so it's not just prose? So it seems obviously very poetic, and poetry does not necessarily take the form of standard prose and paragraphs. And there are many who address this, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, the Haimek Davar, the Baruch Shemar address this and say that, that to understand, to be able to sing a song, you can only sing at the end. They couldn't sing Shira in Mitzrayim, no matter how wonderful and miraculous the plagues were. They couldn't because they hadn't seen the end of the story yet. You can only sing when you see the end of the story, because in the story there are gaps. There are parts which don't make sense. There are silences where it doesn't look like it's all working out. In order to be able to do it, you need to be able to stand back after it's finished and look back at the vista and say, this is magnificent. This was even the gaps where there was writing and there were there were gaps. It all makes sense. And that's the perspective that they had. When it comes to the difference between hearing and seeing, when I see something, I see it in a flash. The entire picture is made aware to me in one moment. When it comes to hearing, and this is how history works, is it... It is sound after sound after sound, and suddenly realizes that that cacophony was actually really truly a harmony. That's what it takes in order to be able to sing a song, because songs can only truly be sung at the end. And that's the perspective over here. You'll see another question is, why in Miriam's song is she described to be the sister of Aaron and not Moshe? So the Gomorrah in Sota um, describes in Daf Yud Beis and Beis to Yud Gimel and Aleph that when she was only the sister of Aaron, she predicted that there would be the birth of this child, Moshe, and she encouraged her, encouraged her parents to remarry each other to produce Moshe. When he was taken and put on the river, the, the, her parents said, look what happened, what happened to your, your prophecy? And she stood on the side to see what would happen because she believed in her prophecy. And it was this moment where all her dreams, her aspirations, her prophecy came to full fruition. That's why it says, she now goes and takes the, the woman aside to make a song when her prophecy as an, a child, only the source sister of Aaron at that point in time, is now coming to full fruition, which is what she dreamed about and told so many other people about. It took so many years to see it come to full circle. Finally, one last question is, how could the nation of Israel complain about water? Out of all kinds of things, complain about, about, about water? I mean, they just saw Hashem controls water. Why is that the case? So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, the Evis Yaakov, has a very beautiful observation, and he says that it actually miracles don't change people. You can see all kinds of miraculous things, but unless you're willing to change, nothing is going to change. That's why the Gemara says that we learn an interesting halacha out of this aliyah at the end. The Gemara says, So the Darsha Rishimus Amru, those who understood the secret ideas in, in, in the matters of the Torah, said, This refers to the learning of Torah, and that's why they instituted that there should not be three days in the week without learning of Torah, which is why we do Kriyasa Torah on a Monday, a Thursday, and a Shabbos. There's no three days without Torah as well. They weren't just taking a, a metaphor of water and saying, well, we need to find a way to do, to find something, some a hook to, to hang our coat on. What they were saying is, is that even after Aziashir, even after this, the miracles of the water at the sea, people, if the, the, the miracle won't change a person to 
when it comes down to their dire basic day-to-day -day need to change their perspective on that. You need, in order for something to be changing, it needs to be day in, day out. It needs to be something we talk about, it needs to be something which is part of our lives, not just those big moments which really count. And that's what is being talked about over here, which is why it's so essential to have the continuation. With this, we conclude the fourth Aliyah. In the meantime, have a wonderful and meaningful